My name is Mark McGuinness, and this is the 21st Century Creative, the podcast that helps you thrive as a creative professional amid the demands, the distractions, and the opportunities of the 21st century. Welcome to episode six. This week, we are focusing on how to have more creative and productive conversations in your working life. Helping us to do this is Michael Bungay-Stania, a highly creative coach and leadership expert. And during the interview, Michael and I open up some ideas and tips from his latest book, The Coaching Habit. If you're a leader or a creative director, This interview is a treasure trove of inspiration for you. And even if you don't have director or manager on your job title, if you work with other human beings, and if you would like to have better working relationships with them, and if you want to be more influential and achieve better results with your collaborators, then you'll find plenty of useful ideas in Michael's interview. Here at 21st Century Creative Towers, putting the final touches on the interviews for season one of the show. And I've already started scheduling guests and planning the content for season two. That's right. I created season one as a prototype to see if there was an appetite for this kind of show among my fellow creatives. Well, judging from the response, I think it's safe to conclude that indeed there is. It's been wonderful hearing so many people from so many different creative industries and so many different countries around the world being so enthusiastic about the show. I'm hearing stories of people listening to this podcast on their commute to work, in the gym, on boats, on planes, on trains, in the car, and while they're working away in their offices and studios. And it's a real privilege to know that the show's a valued companion for you as you go about your working week. So, I've decided to pull the trigger and get going on season two. That's the road ahead. But, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's not forget we're only halfway through season one. There's a lot more to come, there's everything to play for, and it's time to blow the whistle for the start of the second half. Today's theme is, your creativity is your security. Years ago, I was in a hotel in an unfamiliar city, the night before running a workshop for a client. The last few months had been pretty challenging. I was dealing with artists and small agencies, with plenty of enthusiasm but not much training budget, and I was going through one of my periods of wondering whether I was wasting my time trying to make this business take off. Then the phone rang, and I recognised my friend's name. Let's call him Sam. He was full of excitement and said he had an offer I'd be mad to refuse. A few months ago, he landed a new job in sales, and it was going really well. Now, he said he told his boss all about me and my communication skills and persuaded him that I could be a great addition to his team. His boss was keen to meet me. 
it was a good basic salary, the equivalent of a six-figure salary in US dollars. Plus, there were generous bonuses on offer for making sales. Compared to the last couple of years of my business, the money sounded pretty good. Not only that, it was guaranteed money, every month, in the bank. And from what I knew of the work and my previous experience of selling to large businesses, I was pretty confident I could bring in plenty of bonus on top of that. You'll be a natural here, said Sam. With the way you can talk to clients, you'll be ahead of me within a few months. If you work hard, that is. Thanks. I really appreciate you thinking of me, I said. And it was true. He knew I'd been struggling, and he'd obviously pushed the boat out to help me by talking to his boss. Sam sighed. You're not interested, are you? Well, I said, I'll think about it. I'll let you know when I get back to London. But we both knew I had no choice. There was no way I was prepared to give up on my chosen path. It wasn't just that I'd worked so hard on it, and I was convinced things would improve if I kept going. It was the fact I couldn't imagine any other life. I was a creator. I was on a mission. Giving up on that and getting a job would have felt like admitting defeat. So I knuckled down and got on with my plan. And eventually things did pick up. It took a while before the business was firing on all cylinders, but a lot of it worked out pretty well as I'd planned. The assets I'd created in terms of my blog, my website, my products and mailing list and so on, brought in more and more income. And some wonderful things happened that I could never have predicted back then. A few months after that phone call, I heard from Sam again. The company had been taken over and his boss had been ousted from the board. Sam was seen as his boss's man, so he was fired, in spite of his excellent performance. After talking to Sam and doing my best to cheer him up, I couldn't help thinking about what would have happened to me if I'd taken the sales job. I'd have been out on my ear within six months of closing my business and announcing my decision to all my clients. It would have been really hard to start the whole thing up again after that. It felt like a lucky escape. The thing is, the steady job that had been dangled in front of me looked more secure than running my own show, but in fact, it wasn't. Because if your sole source of income is your employer, there is a single point of failure in your career. Your employer. If they deem you surplus to requirements, then you're out. And the older you get, the more risky this becomes. Because it's harder to get back into the job market when you're competing against younger people who look, to a lot of employers, like a cheaper and more up-to-date option. But if you're running your own show and you're building the kind of creative assets we talked about last week, such as a portfolio of amazing work, a network of professional contacts, a popular website, a mailing list of people keen to hear from you, a range of your own products, or a unique and valuable service offering, then it takes multiple points of failure to bring your career to a halt. So you're in a far more secure position. And this doesn't just apply to freelancers and business owners. If you're an employee, there's nothing to stop you creating your own assets in your own time, 
for career advancement as well as creative fulfillment. I know several people who landed better jobs when their blogs attracted inquiries from companies eager to hire them. And the hiring process was much more of an even playing field. One person said, The meetings didn't feel at all like an interview. It was much more of a conversation about whether we were a good fit and what we could do together. So, your creativity is your security. The more assets you have, the more money, connections and opportunities will flow to you. And the easier it will be to ride out the storms ahead. So the more imaginative, innovative and persistent you are in creating valuable assets, the more secure you will be over the long term. And the good news, as I said last week, is that you can create the assets you want out of thin air. The world of creative assets is a meritocracy. None of us are born with silver spoons in our mouths or best-selling albums or novels in our back catalogue. But there are no guarantees. Creating assets is an exciting idea, but what if nobody wants to read your novel? What if your product launch is a flop? What if no one wants to option your movie script, or buy your art prints, or listen to your music? Well, that will suck. And there's no way to avoid it. There are no sure things when it comes to creativity. There's always a risk that a particular project will fail. It's entirely possible that a day will come when you'll look back on your efforts to create a particular asset, a particular project, and it will feel like a complete waste of time. Note my choice of words. It may feel like a complete waste of time, but it won't be. Because even if you write a book and it fails, you still wrote a book, and you learned a lot in the process. Even if you create a product or launch a business and it's a total financial disaster, you will have first-hand experience of what it takes to build and launch something from scratch. Like your novelist friend, you will learn a hell of a lot in the process. So, whatever your brand of failure, if you still have the appetite, what you learned will serve you well next time round. Your next project will be better than the last one. It may even be a success in the terms that matter to you. Look at the history of any great creator, in the arts, in business or any other field, and you'll likely find their early years littered with failures. Thomas Edison's thousand unsuccessful attempts at making a light bulb. Walt Disney's multiple bankruptcies. Stephen Pressfield's drawers full of unpublishable novels. And so on. The usual lesson we take from this, and it's a good one, is that we should persist in the face of failure. I'd also add that those creative folks were aiming for the right kind of success, i.e. the exponential, game-changing, asset-creating kind. It's the same logic record labels and Hollywood studios have been using for decades. Sign a lot of artists, put out a lot of movies or records, knowing that most of them won't be a hit. Maybe one in ten. But that tenth one can recoup your whole investment and a whole lot more. And you wouldn't have got it without your willingness to spread your risk and back several likely horses. Your creativity is your security. But how secure is your current career path? 
Here's a way to find out. Firstly, make a list of all the points of failure, i.e. the areas where things could go wrong and threaten your job security if you're an employee, or the viability of your business if you're self-employed. So if you're employed and your income is totally dependent on that employer who could terminate your employment, then you have a single point of failure. If you're a freelancer and you have one or two clients who are responsible for most of your income, you have one or two points of failure. If you sell multiple products to multiple markets or you have multiple clients, you have multiple points of failure. Now, think about what assets you can create that will make you more secure by multiplying your points of failure. So just to recap briefly the kind of assets we looked at last week, firstly, there's your portfolio, your actual creative work, your social assets like a network, an audience, or a brand, association with other prestigious brands, prizes and awards that you've won that boost your reputation, online assets like a website, a blog, podcast, a YouTube channel, and so on, intellectual property assets like the copyright in your works, and business assets like your product range or your company itself. Now, to help you with this part, I've listed all these types of asset in the show notes. So just go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm/6. Once you've reviewed the list, decide on the kind of asset that you want to create next. So, for example, if you're a small business with one big distributor for your products, you might think about creating another product range and selling via other distributors, or direct from your own website. If you rely on Google Ads for finding new customers, you might start building an email list so you can communicate with them over the long term and generate repeat business that way. If you're an employee, you could write a book or a column for an industry magazine or start a podcast or YouTube channel so that you become a thought leader in your field with an audience and network independent of your employer. So if your job disappears or you just don't like it that much, it's easier to find new opportunities. So this week, it's all about deciding what asset you're going to create. Next week, I'm going to look at the question of how to carve out time for creating these assets in the middle of everything else that you have to do. If you're enjoying the 21st Century Creative, you may like to know there is more to this podcast than meets the ear. To help you succeed in your creative career or business, I've created an in-depth program, the 21st Century Creative Foundation Course. It covers the personal and professional skills you'll need to succeed as a creative professional in the 21st century. In other words, the stuff they probably didn't teach you at art school, on your creative writing masters, or wherever else you learned your craft. Things like how to manage your time how to communicate your ideas, how to handle difficult conversations, how to close a sale, how to deal with money, how to grow your network, and how to attract an audience for your work. Altogether, there are 26 lessons in the course, full of practical advice, plus a worksheet for each one to help you put the ideas into practice. And I'm giving you the entire course for free. 
In case you can't quite believe your ears, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course and see for yourself. When you get there, you can sign up with just an email address and you'll get your first lesson right away. By the way, the course has already been taken by over 11,000 students. And on the sign up page, you'll see lots of testimonials from other creatives whose lives and careers have been changed by the course. You can join them right now for free by going to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash free course. Michael Bungay-Stania is the founder and senior partner of Box of Crayons, a company that helps people and organizations all over the world do less good work and more great work. Box of Crayons is best known for its coaching programs that give busy managers the tools to coach in just 10 minutes or less. Michael was named the first Canadian Coach of the Year, which he likes to say is pretty good for an Australian. He was recently named the number two coaching guru in the world, and he's been on my own radar as a coach for a number of years as one of the really creative thought leaders in my profession. He's written a number of books, the latest of which is The Coaching Habit, a guide to coaching skills for managers, leaders, and anyone else who has responsibility for developing a team of people and getting the best out of them at work. I'm particularly grateful to Michael for writing this book, as a large part of my own work over the years has been helping managers and leaders and creative directors to be better coaches for their teams. But I've never managed to articulate the case for coaching as clearly and persuasively as Michael does in this book. So this is one of the books I regularly buy for my coaching clients, and it really lights them up. Michael is great at boiling down a complex skill set into simple principles that you can apply in your work right away. And you can see this in the subtitle of the book, Say Less, Ask More, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. One more thing before we plunge into the conversation. If you're listening to this and thinking, well, I'm not a manager, this one won't really apply to me, then think again. Because if your work depends in any way on communicating and collaborating with other people, whether as clients, suppliers, partners, or team members, you'll find the principles Michael talks about very relevant to your working life. Let's start right at the beginning. You know, I'm Mm. curious about what drew you to coaching in the first place. Yeah, you know, it it started really quite young um, and I wouldn't have called it coaching then because that kind of language didn't exist. But when I was a teenager, I spent a fair amount of time with my angsty teenage friends talking about their angsty teenage life. And what was kind of obvious, certainly now, is that I was always pretty good at listening to them and asking questions and kind of being present and all of that sort of good stuff. But I was also very conscious at the time that (laughs) whilst I seemed to find myself in these situations, I didn't know what the heck I was doing at all. So I was kind of sitting there, should I be saying something more, saying something less? What was going on with that? And then when I joined, got to university, I actually went and did my first formal piece of training. I I was part of um, 
youth hotline, you know, suicide Mm -hmm. or anxiety hotline. So it taught me the basics of Rogerian counseling, which in effect Uh is saying there's more going on than what's on the surface. So stay curious and probe a little. And I did that through university in Australia and also in the UK as well. And when I finally did get uh, out of university and start working, um, about that time, you started noticing the rise of coaching on the West Coast of the US. You know, it's a kind of the Californian experience. And of course, because I was in England at the time, I was going, yep, it's another classic, touchy-feely, pastel-colored Californian (laughs) thing. But I was curious because it felt like it connected to something that I was interested in and I could do and I could see the impact of it. When I moved to Canada, where was I? No, I was in Boston when when this happened. Um, I started reframing my relationships with my clients, my consulting clients as kind of coaching relationships to see what that, what happened. And I hired my first coach who was, you know, she's okay. She wasn't great. Um, but it kind of made me think, you know, there's something here for me. And then when in 2001, I moved up to Canada, which is where I now live, I did my formal coach training and uh, kind of launched my formal career as a coach. Although that had its ups and downs as well. I actually kind of built out, grew my practice, had a bunch of clients, and then annoyingly (laughs) discovered that I didn't actually enjoy coaching nearly as much as I thought I did. Um, You know, this is a classic thing that, you know, all of us struggle with as creatives in terms of trying to find our path is you take your best guess, you sprint at it for a while, and then you've got to stop and go, is this actually what I was looking for? Or is the is the experience of doing this uh, revealing other elements of who I am that I'm more interested in pursuing? So for me, part of the challenge with having a full-time coaching career was, first of all, loneliness, because I spent just you know hours in my own office talking to people, not really talking to them, but kind of listening to them. Um, so I was, felt a bit um, isolated. Secondly, there was a thing about impact for me as well, because whereas I did feel I was helping individuals, I wasn't really having the kind of splash on the world that I really wanted to have. So having built up my coaching practice, I kind of dismantled it and moved from being a coach to teaching other people how to be more coach-like. And that's what the work we do is at Box of Crayons, as you know, and it's what the new book is, is mostly about as well. Right. So maybe this is a good place to unpack exactly what we mean by coaching, or maybe it could mean different mm. things in different contexts. It, it does. And I'm glad you're asking me this because it's it's one of the things that keeps me engaged in this work and kind of winds me up. And it, the summary would be coaching comes with a whole lot of baggage for a whole lot of people. You know, it's like <laughs> some people are like, oh, God, it's it's touchy-feely life coaching full of incense and chakras and <laughs> how are you feeling? Now, how are you feeling? And I'm, I'm being parodic here, but people get what I mean. Some people, it's like executive coaching, which is like, you know, whip me even harder and faster to get me to the next level of success. <laughs> um, you know, some people, it's kind of c- conflated with therapy, so it's lie down on a couch and kind of moan about things. Um, and the truth is all of those have some real benefits. There's some real goodness in all aspects of that. But I would love to make coaching feel a more normal, more everyday way of just showing up with people. In fact, one of the kind of 
critical moments of my career. You know, one of those peak moments of my career was the very, very first book I wrote. Uh, this is probably, I can't remember, let's say 10 years ago now. Uh, it's called Get Unstuck and Get Going on the Stuff That Matters. It's a kind of self-published and it's a self-coaching tool. And, you know, I was even less well-known than I am now. So I was like, okay, how do I make a book like this better known? And one of the ways is you go, you write to famous people and say, will you write a blurb on my book? So I picked a number and one of them was a guy called Peter Block. Now, um, he's he's a kind of writer and thinker who I love in this space of how do you show up and be an adult in your own life, in your own working life? And when Peter got this book, he actually wrote a blurb for it, which is remarkable because he's kind of got a reputation of being a slightly grumpy old dude who doesn't do things like that. But he was kind enough to do it for me. And he said, look, coaching is not a profession. It's a way of being with each other. And even now that just yeah. rings so true for me, which is how do you show up and be with people in a slightly different way? And and this is I think is why this is going to resonate with the, the folks who are listening into this podcast. The way I now think about coaching you know, as a as what it what it is as a behavior is how do you stay curious just a little bit longer? How do you rush to action and advice just a little bit slower? And even though I know we're talking to people who would self-identify as creatives and so they, they get the importance of this curiosity piece, I'm still gonna say that not only in the work that you do, but in the way that you interact and manage people, not just direct reports, if you happen to have those, but with your partners, your vendors, your clients, we tend to rush to action and advice just a little bit too quickly. I think you're absolutely spot on there, Michael. And I've actually sent this book to clients, A, who are managers and leaders and creative directors, but also ones who are not, but they have clients of their own. And they have business partners and they have collaborators uh, you know and suppliers and it because it's really about like you say it's a way of being with people where if you like you press pause on your own agenda just a little bit longer than maybe you feel comfortable with long enough to get into their world and to really connect with them so i love that yeah that definition of it as a way of being and it's and it's not just getting into their world that's such an important part of it it's figuring out how best to serve that other person and We're all pretty thoroughly trained that the best way to help other people out is to tell them what to do. (laughs) But the irony is that most of us don't like being told what to do. Most of us have found that when we're trying to tell other people what to do, it doesn't work that well. And even though when you're in that position of giving somebody the help, the advice, the guidance, it feels pretty good because you're you're the smart one, you're in control, you know where this conversation is going. It doesn't actually have that much impact much of the time. I mean, I'm not saying never give advice at all. I'm just saying, can we slow down the rush to giving advice? And the place of being curious, the place of asking questions, uh, what another hero of mine, Edgar Schein, would call humble inquiry, it's a much less comfortable place to be because it's you're giving up power to the other person to answer that question. It's much more ambiguous and uncertain as to what's about to happen because you've, you know, you've asked a question and you're like, is that, is that the right question? Is that a good question? What's their answer going to be? But it can be a much more effective way of interacting and serving people. Okay. Obviously, I'm a coach myself, so I'm, I'm 
reading from the same page as you, but I'll play devil's advocate for a minute, Michael. Yes. And just, and I know you've encountered this plenty of times. I'm imagining the busy stroke stress leader or creative director or art director or, or you know, someone in a senior position saying, Michael, that sounds really great in theory. And in an ideal <laughs> world, I would love to do it. But I just, exactly. in the real world, I don't have time. I'm under pressure. I've got to get yeah. results. And it's my neck on the line if they get yeah. it wrong. So I really do need to tell them. What would you say to that person? Yeah, I said, that's not devil's advocate. That's just reality. I mean, that's what a bunch of people listening in are saying, which is like, yeah, yeah. It's all very good to kind of pull up a chair and have a nice, long, curiosity-driven conversation. But who has time for that? We're all drowning under obligations. doesn't matter if you're in a big company or a small agency or even if you're a solopreneur. You know, we're all feeling stretched and a little overwhelmed. So here's what I'd say. The first is uh, our take on it is that if you can't coach in 10 minutes or less, you don't have time to coach. And really, I want to I want to kind of blow up this idea that coaching involves, a, you know, an hour conversation or even a 30 minute conversation. It can be really fast because remember, we're not trying to save somebody's soul. We're just trying to stay curious just a little bit longer. The second thing to be thinking about it is. What we're talking about with coaching is a change of your behavior. You're showing up a little more curious. You're rushing to advice and action a little bit more differently. And what we're not doing is adding extra time or obligation to what you're doing. What we're doing is trying to transform the way you currently interact with the work that you're already doing. You know, the, the metaphor I sometimes use is, look, you have your, your glass is already full. We're not trying to pour more water into the glass. There's no point. What we are trying to do is like, if you like, squirt some food coloring into that water so it changes. So it changes your nature of interacting with people. And it is true that asking some questions can take a little longer than just telling the person what to do. However, it's also true that when you just tell the person what to do, you're building your – there are other costs, time costs involved, um, and they involve things such as you're now training that other person to come to you and get the answer from you every time. So now there's just that additional cost of them every time they've got a challenge, every time they don't know yeah. what to do. Yeah. They're just going to knock on your door or send you an email or give you a call or whatever, and you're going to have to fix it for them. So you're not doing anything to break that pattern of dependency. The second thing is you're probably um, – uh, I'd say there's a solid chance that your advice is not nearly as good as you think it is. <laughs> so so there's, a couple, there's a couple of things that tend to play out as regular patterns. The first is somebody comes into your office. Mark comes into my office and goes, Michael, blah, 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 blah. And I go, oh, okay, that. Okay, Mark, go do this. And two things have probably happened. The first is the advice you've given me is, is probably okay, but there's a fair chance it's not nearly as good as you think it is, and therefore they'll come back and go, yeah, that didn't work. Now what do I do? Mm. The second thing that's often playing out is that the first challenge that gets show, that shows up is actually not the real challenge. And, you know, I know there's a bunch of creatives listening to this podcast right now who are nodding their head because the very nature of creativity is a willing to wrestle with the challenge. 
Um, and although we all know that in theory, often in our day-to-day behavior, it doesn't quite play out like that. So there is a good chance that you're now providing a solution to the wrong challenge. So how this all adds up is you're now providing slightly crappy advice to solve the wrong problem. And if you think that's the most efficient way of working, I'm going to say you're wrong. Okay, so what's the alternative? Suppose I rush into your office, hey, boss, we've got a problem, unloading it on you, expecting to be spoon-fed or expecting to be pointed in the right direction and to go off and get into that cycle of advice and dependency and coming back and saying whatever – what are you going to be doing instead in this in this new way of being? In this, in this new world. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the simplest answer is you're going to ask a few questions before you offer up the advice. Um, it's, of course, more complicated than that. Um, at least the, the mechanics of getting to that place of simply asking a few questions is, is more uh, complicated than that. The first is you've got to kind of prime yourself to recognize the triggers you have and the old habits that are no longer serving you. And then you've got to be thinking about how do I build some new habits to respond to this default reaction you have of jumping in and giving people advice. That's why in the book, so the book, you know, we really try and make things as simple as possible. You know, that classic Einstein quote, things should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. Mm-hmm. That's what we've, we've struggled or, or endeavored to do with the, the coaching habit book. And the book itself is effectively one chapter on how to build new habits, seven good questions. I say that if you've got these seven great questions, that's going to give you pretty much all you need to be an effective leader who's more coach-like. And then some other tips on how to ask a question well. So if you come into my office and go, Michael, blah, 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 help, what should I do? My reaction, at least in the best of possible worlds, I'm, I'm sure I don't do this every time, but if <laughs> this is enlightened do, Michael talking, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'd probably say, "Hey, Mark, wow, I, I hear, I hear this is urgent for you, important. Um, let me just check in because I'll, I'll certainly give you some ideas. But before I do, what what's the real challenge here for you? This is one of the questions from the book. The third yeah. question, in fact, what's the real challenge here for you? And I'm going to stay curious and listen to your answer and you're going to go blah 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 this is the real challenge for me and i'm going that's great but um what else is a challenge here and then i'll go great and what else is a challenge here and then i'm going to go okay so you've got a bunch of challenges let's go a little deeper what's the real challenge here for you and this interaction is going to take somewhere under five minutes maybe under three minutes depends and once you've gone that level down, what's the real challenge here for you? A couple of things are going to happen. One is you're going to go, okay, if that's the real challenge, I actually know how to deal with that. And I'm like, that's awesome, Mark. Feel free to carry on. If you're like, okay, that feels like the real challenge. I still don't know how to do it. I'd go, okay, no problem. Um, I've got some ideas about how you could address that challenge. Um, They might be useful, but I bet you've got some initial ideas as well. So, Mark, what's your first thought on how, if that's the real challenge, how to tackle it? And you'll give me an idea because you're creative and everybody's creative. Everybody's got at least one idea about how to tackle this. And then I'll go, I love it, Mark. That's a great idea. What else could you do? And I'll go, great. What else could you do? And then depending on how the conversation is going, I might start feeding in an idea or two of my own around that as well. So this is a real commitment to getting this thing sorted out. 
But what I'm committed to do is doing a couple of things. One is I'm going to spend a bit of time figuring out what the real challenge is so we don't waste our time trying to solve the wrong problem, which is often appearing as the first problem. Secondly, I'm going to spend a bit of time figuring out what you already know what to do. Because I know as a leader, as a manager, as somebody trying to influence you, that if you come up with these ideas yourself, that's going to increase your competence and your confidence and your capacity so that you're increasingly not going to need to rush in and go, Michael, how do I do this? You're going to have the capacity to figure this stuff out by yourself. That's a, that's a long answer. It's even a bit technical. Does that, does that all make sense to you, Mark? Yeah, I mean, basically, you're, you're talking about being moving from being the instructor to the facilitator. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, the, I wrote the book uh, thinking about busy managers in, in bigger organizations. And I know many of the people listening to this are going, well, that's not me. I have a different life. But I really wrote it for people interacting with other human beings because I think there's wisdom in that kind of corporate leadership that applies to everybody. And in fact, I was with um, a guy called Alan Mullally the other day, and I'm casually name dropping that because Alan Mullally is the was the former CEO of Ford, first outsider coming in to run Ford, was basically presented with the problem of you have <laughs> we're losing seventeen billion dollars this year, you have to sort that out. And he, <laughs> you know, and, and it's quite an inbox. People, exactly. But what's so brilliant about him is, A, is how kind of normal and humble and down-to-earth he was. Secondly, his whole thing was, my role as a leader is to delegate and to facilitate. And if you can do that as the leader of Ford, which is an enormous international company talking about things like $17 billion, which I'm sure not a single person on this podcast has the least idea what that even means. It's such a large number. Um, then uh, it's something that all of us can do in, in our in our lives, and that's what I'm just trying to do: is just to trying to amp up the facilitatoriness of that conversation at all, knowing that you can do it in a really fast and efficient way. Yeah, and I would encourage people. The way Michael talks through it, it sounds quite easy and smooth, and the way he does it, I'm sure will be that. And he, you know, you're right, Michael. It is a complex set of skills. But one thing I really love about the book and is just the bold simplicity you've got of these seven questions. You know, we can get a handle on seven questions. And if you go through, you read the questions, they're all really, really good questions. Right, right. If you can get a handle on these, they will give you, you know, it's a bit like the 80-20. You know, you, you will get so much more leverage and so much more impact in conversations just using these simple disarmingly simple seven questions so if it yeah. feels a bit overwhelming then michael does boil it down i mean where did how did you come about this idea because i've not seen it done quite like that before well it you know it's it's a great it's a great creating story that probably resonates with the folks listening in because this book which i which i do think has a as an elegance and a simplicity and a beauty to it because i care about i care about all of those things i care about the design and the feel of it uh, it w was a book that almost killed me. <laughs> and I know everybody, everybody listening in like has had that books. moment. Yeah. Yeah. Has had that moment where the work they've been doing, people go, oh, yeah, that's, that's good. I like it. It's nice and simple. And you know the iterations you've had to go to get from from one side of complexity through complexity and out onto the other side of complexity. So 
I wrote, actually wrote four full versions of this book, all of which vaguely sucked. Um, <laughs> all of which I was right. trying to pitch to my New York editor. All of they, and they kind of were both wise and stupid. They were wise because they said this isn't a very good version of the book, which is true. They were stupid because they didn't see what I was trying to get to and yeah. and help me with that. Um, so I actually ended up self-publishing that book, which is another story. But, you know, I, Mark, I, I started off and I'm like, here's the 163 questions that I think are awesome. And then I was like, okay, that's right. a terrible book. And I'm like, here's <laughs> every single thing I've ever thought about about coaching. And I'm like, oh, wow, there's, a, and there's 163 chapters of that as well. And that's also a terrible book. And then I'm like, here's the one question. And I'm like, okay, that's too simple. Yeah. And honestly, it was back and forth and various iterations that finally got me to, to land on, on these seven questions. And then it was framed with the goal to write the shortest possible book I, I could. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, it's a self-help book. It's a business book. And I read a lot of those and I think most of them are pretty awful. I'm just not even awful, just kind of thoroughly mediocre. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's because they feel bloated. You know, that yeah. whole, yeah. let me tell you a tired old story that everybody's already heard before. You know, in, in the business world, the classic is, let me tell you a story about Southwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm like, <laughs> it's a great story. And it was a great story 20 years ago when it got told. Why are we still trotting out that same tired old meme? So I can't even remember what your question was, but there's my answer. Well, it was about the seven questions, you know. Right. And I think we've got – and I love the, the fact that you went to such extremes. One question, 163. <laughs> and you arrived at obviously a, a magical number, which is great. I mean, I spend a, I spend a lot of time – Part of the way I write books is I, I've got to get the I've got to get the structure right before you can start filling in yeah. the content. Um, and honestly, I just went through hundreds of pages of writing writing structures out to try and make it work. I probably wrote because I've got a terrible memory. I probably honestly wrote the same structure out you know a hundred times. <laughs> but I was like, I, it, it's and I know this will resonate for some of the folks listening in, which is when you find the deep structure of your project. Yeah. suddenly everything becomes clear. But to find that deep structure, and that's a structure that most people won't even see or understand, that's often where the real work has to take place. Yeah. And, you know, I've been thinking as you go along, there's several things here that really resonate. Cause, so one of my ideas is that a lot of creatives are much better at communication skills, business skills in general, than they give themselves credit for. They've got mm -hmm. a lot of the same toolkit, but they apply it in a different context. So, for instance, you know, being curious, questioning, and questioning again to see, is this the real problem? Is this the real challenge? Is this right. really what this work is all about? Well, we do that day in, day out, staring at our Macs or our easels or chipping away at the stone. And it's that same patience and persistence and questioning and, and looking and looking again, you just simply apply that to the people around you. Ask another question. Listen a bit more. Start looking for the deep structure of what's going yeah. on here. You know, I, I mean, I think it's a it's an interesting challenge for for folks who would self-identify as being creatives because my and this is just me guessing, but my guess is that for for many people, that ability to 
ferret out a problem and come up with interesting solutions and opportunities and possibilities is something that has become, if you like, unconscious knowing. They just kind of yeah. do it automatically. Yeah. You know those four levels of learning, it is unconscious incompetence, which is like when you don't even know that you're bad. <laughs> yeah. And then there's conscious incompetence. That's when you start learning something for the first time and you're like, man, I'm really bad at this. Yeah. Um, and then there's conscious competence where you go, oh, I'm pretty good at this. I'm getting the hang of it. And then there's unconscious competence where you just, it's, it's habitual. It's automatic. And I bet you for a lot of people listening in, that creative piece is often habitual. But the, the level after conscious competence is when you kind of, I like to think of it as kind of the, the teaching moment, which is when you have to then deconstruct your conscious competence to actually see the, the patterns and the structures so that you, you understand it at a deeper level. And my guess is that these, these disciplines of conscious competence that so many people listening to this podcast have could actually be even more powerful if they went to that next level, which is how do I now more thoughtfully, more mindfully apply these tools, not just in my day-to-day -day creative work, but in that as well, but also in the way that I interact and work with other people. Okay, so I'm imagining our kind of slightly disgruntled manager, creative director type in the corner saying, all right, well, yeah, blah, 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 Michael and Mark, blah, blah, blah. Well, you may, maybe there is something here. Maybe I could do it in 10 minutes or less. Maybe mm. I could ask a question. Maybe I could learn to do these seven questions. And I can see why that would benefit my team. I could see why they would love it because they're getting the benefit of my coaching. And I guess I can see why that would benefit my company because, you know, these this team's more motivated and, and creative and so on. But what about me? What's it going to do for me? Mm. You know, when, when it's really, when I'm really up against it and I'm feeling overwhelmed, what, what is coaching offer me that I couldn't get by just doing it the quicker, easier, more traditional route? The first thing to say is coaching is not always the answer. So there are going to be times when you just doing it is the right, the right solution to this. Um, let's not pretend that coaching replaces everything that's gone before. What it is, though, is for almost everybody an underutilized leadership skill. And by leadership, I mean interacting with other human beings. It's not, you know, I have a formal leadership position necessarily. It's like if you interact with other human beings, being more coach-like can be a useful tool, and it's an underutilized tool at the moment. But if you're this manager going, okay, I get why this is good for other people and for the company, but really, what's in it for me? The, the kind of the fastest answer is to say, look, let me show you how to work less hard but have more impact. Ooh. Because I think when you get good at asking these questions, a few things are going to show up. Um, you're going to have a team that is more self-sufficient, more autonomous, more competent, more confident. And that's good for you because that means they spend less time knocking on your door, you know, metaphorically or real, asking for help. You're also going to have a team that's more focused so that they're working on the right stuff. Um, Mark, you and I, uh, you know, you and I have talked about a previous book I wrote called Do More Great Work. Yes. Uh, the subtitle is uh, Stop the Busy Work and Start the Work That Matters. And the very simple model in that is to say, look, everything we do falls into one of these three different buckets, bad work, good work, and great work. Bad work 
the mind-numbing, soul-sucking, life-crushing, waste of time, bureaucracy, the, you know, the stuff that makes you go, man, this is my, this is my precious life and I'm somehow doing this. <laughs> what, what did I do to deserve this? And, and honestly, almost everybody knows what I'm talking about with that. Um, good work, if you like, is your job description. So it's about being productive and effective and efficient. And even in the, in the creative space, we all know what that means. It's like getting the, the job done. It's what your boss wants you to do. Um, even when you're your own boss, it's what, you know, it's like serving the client, getting the thing done, doing all that stuff. But then great work is the work that has more impact and the work that has more meaning. So impact is about serving the organization in that broader sense. You know, what what's the dint you're trying to make in the universe? But meaning is going, how do I do work that actually is engaging and meaningful and values-based for me? And in my experience, everybody has a hunger to do a little more great work. There's very, 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 very few people who go, I have just got too much great work at the moment, too much work that has impact, too much work that has meaning. <laughs> and one of the, the reasons that we've kind of doubled down on coaching as the thing we focus on is I think it's one of the most powerful ways to help people find and start and sustain their great work. You know, if you look at two of the, the key questions from the seven, one is, and people have heard this already, the, the focus question, number three in the book, what's the real challenge here for you? Mm-hmm. And that has a way of getting into the heart of what's the, what's the thing we're wrestling with that could open up to great work. And then the fifth question, which is called the strategic question, um, and you know, creatives will know this as well, but is if you're going to say yes to this, what must you say no to, to give that yes, strength and meaning and boundaries rather than being a flabby, I'll just add this onto everything else I'm attempting to do, yes. And so I think that's the other thing that's in it for you as a manager is not only do you have a team that's more confident and confident and self-autonomous and self-sufficient, so they spend less time bugging you, so you have more time to do your own work. Uh, not that managing people isn't your own work, but you know what I mean. Um, and But it's also a way of saying this can open up more great work for your team, but more great work for you as well. So that when you go home or you head to the pub and somebody says, so what do you do? You don't get that slightly sinking feeling in your stomach going, oh, man, I have to justify my <laughs> – I have to yeah. explain my job and I'm not that excited about it. You're like, oh, man, let me tell you what we're up to at the moment. You get excited by that. And I think that's what it can offer you as well. Yeah, I think there's a couple of really important points here. One is you know, your definition. What is your work? Because all of us, whether we are employed or self-employed, whether we are nominally a manager or nominally a maker, we are work typically consists of making something or doing something hands-on and communicating with other people. And it's, and I know this as a writer myself, that there's a temptation to say, my real work is the hands-on making and doing. And, and obviously there's a lot of us who identify with that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have, to, you know, even if you're the novelist in the garret, you've got to communicate with, you know, an editor, an agent, a publisher, Kindle direct publishing support team, you know, you're going to have to encounter a human being at some stage. So all of this stuff is relevant to that. 
Yeah, I mean, if if in your work you don't engage with human beings ever, then you should just turn this podcast off right now. Um, <laughs> but if you if you talk to other people in your day to day work, be it a vendor or a client or a, a team member or a colleague or a peer, it just is a useful tool to have to say, can you just be a little bit more curious? And the other big thing I think you've highlighted here is, you know, A, a the communicating is part of your work and it's part of your impact. And if it isn't, then it, it really should be. But also by sp- taking a little bit more time up front and, ask, and slowing down and asking the question and facilitating and getting someone going away, thinking for themselves, acting on their own initiative, coming to you with solutions more than and checking in more than looking to you for the answer, you free up more time. Exactly. One manager I worked with years ago when I was training the team on coaching skills turned up really sceptical as thought it was going to be a waste of time. And there was one question that really stayed with him, which was, I think it was, what are your options? Nice. That's a great question. Because, you know, it was the typical when somebody comes in, hey, boss, we've got a problem. And I just said, look, make that your reflex. What are your options? Brilliant. And by reflex, just to jump in, the language I use around that is make that your habit. Right. You know, in, in the book, and I'm just building on what you're saying here, Mark, because I'm violently agreeing with you. You know, <laughs> it's like build, build a habit, build a reflex. When X comes into my office and says, how do I do this? Instead of telling them what to do, you'll ask them, what are your options? Or as I would put it in the book, so I've got some ideas which I'll share with you, but what ideas do you already have? And what else? And what else? And what yeah. else? It, mine's just the same as yours. It's just slightly different language. Yeah, exactly. And I remember this guy coming to me. He was saying, I, I really thought this was going to be a waste of time. He said, but that question meant that I could go home at half past five for the first time in four years. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> because he wasn't bottling up. His habit had been either to try and give them instructions on the spot and then they would come back for more. Or he would say, another of his lines was, leave it with me, I'll get back to you. Right, classic. His team were all going home, and he was there with all the stuff that they left with him, and that really yeah. stayed with me. That I love that. I mean, it's a it's a microcosm of the whole impact we're trying to have with this this um, this coaching approach. Because, you know, the the three curses of the the modern manager is you've got an overdependent team, and you're clearly seeing that in your story. Um, you have. Um, uh, uh, you become disconnected from the, the bigger picture, the great work that you might be doing. Um, and then you're just overwhelmed by the amount of stuff you have, which means you're, you're also the bottleneck for other people in your organization or in your world. So I love that you're, you're summarizing that story because it captures everything you want to know about why coaching could be a more powerful tool for you. Okay, so Michael, your company, Box of Crayons, has trained over 10,000 managers in how to mm-hmm. do this. Probably over 20,000 now, I'm going to guess. Okay, but yeah, I'm just going through the book blurb, right? A yeah, lot. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so you've had time and your team has had time to see a lot of people up close struggling with this day in, day out, the ones who succeed, the ones who carry on struggling. So mm-hmm. what would you say is the biggest difference between the ones who struggle to put it into practice or keep thinking it's a great idea in theory, I just can't do it in reality, as opposed to the ones who have the light bulb moment, who go away, who build the coaching habit and who reap the benefits. What, what's the biggest difference you've seen? Well, obviously, the people who take my advice live a life of complete happiness and fulfillment <laughs> and everybody else 
It was a dark, miserable existence. But apart from that, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's typically a bell curve, Mark, in, in how people show up and when they go through our training. And you know, the, at the top of the bell curve, you tend to have the people who completely drink the Kool-Aid. You know, they love it. Mm. <laughs> They're like, yeah. oh, my God, I kind of was doing this anyway, and now, I, now you've given me these tools. I see the light. This is going to be fantastic. And honestly, you don't have to do anything with them other than just to say, go for it. And at the bottom end of the bell curve, there are the people who just don't get it. Um, sometimes it's because they're cynics and they've kind of like long ago decided that this stuff is a bunch of hogwash and I'm not going to try anything new. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people who just go, honestly, I just don't get it. And I, I can't change the way I work. And you know, nothing terrible happens to them. They just carry on working the way that they've always worked, which tends to mean that they are a little stuck, um, you know, a little overwhelmed, a little bottlenecky, have a team that's a little disconnected, there's a little less great work or meaningful work or engaged work that's going on for their team. And then a majority of people are probably in the middle, and I'd use the word that you used earlier, which is they're skeptical. You know, in part because they've been to a thousand training courses before, most of which sucked badly so they're like, oh, man, this is you know, half a day of my life. Yeah. I'm never going to get back again. Yeah. That's, that's at least 80 emails in the hole. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's funny when you when you ask at the start, what, what would you like to get out of this training? And people go, I just love one or two minor tactic I can take away. I'm like, I love it that the bar is so low. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're like, <laughs> honestly, you're hoping to get one or two small things after four hours of training. I mean, why don't you just listen to a 20-minute podcast? You're going to get – at least that. Um, and so with the skeptics, they're the people who are going, I, look, I would love this to work, but it probably won't. So when you can deliver a training that actually feels practical and useful and not patronizing and not kind of tedious and not somebody monologuing from the front of the room with overly stuffed PowerPoint slides, um, you actually find a bunch of people get quite excited about this. And because we put so much weight on practicing it so people can actually feel the experience and see the impact people tend to walk away going this is already cracked open a challenge that i've been having you know this is i've already at lunchtime i was on the phone to somebody and i tried i tried one of the questions and it made a difference to the phone call so you really hope that they're going to do that difficult thing about changing their behavior because the way i think of this coaching stuff is that it is simple, it's easy, but difficult. Mm. But honestly, it's easy. Because let me tell you how easy it is. You ask a few more questions and you give a little less advice. So when somebody comes to you, rather than telling them what to do, ask a question. Right, that's easy. It's difficult. I mean, mean, I'm sorry. The the right language is that's simple. Right, that is not a complicated response. I have three questions, ask them more often. However, it is difficult because you have a lifetime of practice um, of telling people what to do. You, ha- you, you operate in a system where you telling people what to do is the expected result by you, by them, by everybody else. So actually looking to shift your behavior is always hard. And that's why we put so much emphasis on the habit building thing right in the first chapter. Because if you don't understand how to build a good habit, you don't really understand the mechanisms of changing your behavior, or at least significantly increasing your odds that you're successfully going to change your behavior. 
Right, and you've kind of got two books rolled into one here. You've got the the how to coach, yep. but then you've got how to how to get yourself to coach at the beginning, and yeah. how, how to build a habit, which you could really use for lots of other things. Oh, well, you can. I mean, that that's, that first chapter, which I, I, I'm pretty sure you can just get for free off the website. The website's thecoachinghabit.com, and I'm, I'm almost 100% sure you can just download this first chapter. So if you're curious, just go and okay. pillage the website there. Okay, let's um, see if we can get a link for that. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Thank you. Um, yes, th- this basic science of building a habit is something that goes way beyond just coaching. It's like everything you do can be focused on that. And Mark, you know, there's there's you know, there's a lot of good information out there about habit building. I'll, I'll give people a few resources if they want to go beyond just that first chapter of the Great. coaching habit book. Great. Um, ah, you know what? Actually, let me give people a better a, a summary resource. This is also on the coachinghabit.com mm-hmm. and it's called something like the six and a half coaching gurus. <laughs> or maybe it's the six and a half habit gurus, I think we called it. Okay. And I basically write a summary of the six thinkers that influenced Great. my thinking most. Um, in, they include Charles Duhigg, who wrote The Power of Habit, which is one of the seminal books around this. Uh, Leah Babauta, who uh, his website is called zenhabits.net. It's fantastic. Uh, he's got a, a book of the same name. Um, BJ Fogg, he's got a great website called tinyhabits.com. Mm-hmm. And there are others as well. But again, this is just a free download on thecoachinghabit.com. It's called, I'm pretty sure it's called either the five and a half or the six and a half <laughs> habit or coaching gurus. <laughs> okay, well, we'll make sure we've got the link up in the show notes so people can get yeah. that nice and easily. And for the everybody listening in, here's a key way of not doing upselling to people when you're the guest on a podcast. You should know at least the title of what you're encouraging people to read. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it makes people more curious. Maybe. All right. So last thing, and I know that this is going to be right up your street, Michael. Yeah. This is a coaching podcast. So this is about getting people not just to listen to great ideas and to to understand them, but actually to start applying them in their own lives. And so every week I'm asking my guest to set a creative challenge to our listeners that they can complete between today, which is Monday, and Friday at midnight. Mm-hmm. And they're going to come and they're going to leave a comment on the post on the, you know, where, where the episode is and report back on progress. So, Michael, what is your challenge? All right, I'm going to give people a choice, two challenges. Mm-hmm. The first one is the simplest one. And it, it's basically to take one of the questions from the book and to ask it at least two times between now and Friday. And that question is the second question in the book. We call it the best coaching question in the world. Mm -hmm. And that question is simply, and what else? Um, The reason why and what else is such a powerful question is that um, a person's first answer to your question is never their only answer, and it's rarely their best answer. Mm -hmm. So the challenge for you is that when you, when you engage in a conversation and you ask a question or you get a response somehow, rather than taking that first response as being the answer and the only answer, ask them, and what else? So that's, that's a pretty simple challenge. Very simple, very clear. Ask, and what else, at least twice between now and Friday. The second challenge is a little, takes a little more work. And I'm actually going to 
take you through a series of four questions right now. We're going to roll one. I'm going to ask, put Mark on the spot and get him to do it with us. Okay. Um, if you want, as you listen on, you could actually work through this and type your response or write down your responses even as we do this. Um, if you like this challenge, you might want to just come back to this podcast recording later on if you're not if it's not handy for you to do the work now and work through it kind of with me as a kind of virtual coach for you if you like. And it's a combination of questions that I think can be really powerful to help you get closer to what the real challenge might be. And we talked a little bit about this already in the podcast, but let's let's really bring this to life. So, so Mark, I want you to start off by just identifying something that you're working on that's kind of top of mind for you, something that's preoccupying you, that you're you're working on, you're worrying about, you're you're trying to trying to crack. Okay, you want me to tell you what it is? Yeah, tell me okay. what it is. So, it's a translation I'm working on of uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's long poem Troilus and Cressida. And I'm translating it into modern English verse because I think it's such a terrific poem and it's in medieval English and nobody reads it these days. So I've just, and there's five books and I've I've got to the end of book one. And I like Mm. to say I've got to the end of it, not that I finished it. So I'm down to the the last few before I send it to my mentor, who's going to give me feedback and hopefully cover it in red ink. I've, down to the last few edits where it's the few lines, there's a few rhymes that have been really escaping me. And it's a bit like an asymptotic curve. I seem to get closer and closer to, f- <laughs> to finishing, but never quite I get there. So I've got to kind okay. of knuckle down and, and, so, get, and get that nailed. So that's beautiful. It's a nice, nice summary of a real tangible uh, challenge. Um, all I can remember from Chaucer is that when the sweet showers of April or something rather, the opening lines of the Canterbury Tales. But uh, I love that you're taking that on. So here's, so for the folks listening, here's the first question number one is basically what's on your mind, right? That's actually question number one from the book as well, which is mm-hmm. a nice way of going, identify something that you're wrestling with, something that's real, something that's tangible, something that you feel a bit stuck on. Then here's the second question. So Mark, what's the real challenge here for you? I think it's finding or refinding my focus because I was in my mind, I was going to put this to bed over Christmas in the holidays and I got most of it done, but not quite. Right. And now I'm into new year, new projects, you know, starting my podcast, all of that. And yeah, I've got to go make sure I do this justice as well. And I don't just rush off and just, just, just leave this not quite as good as it could be. So, so finding your focus. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a second question for everybody listening in. Because remember what I said, the first answer is not necessarily the only answer or the best answer. So the second question is, and what else? What else is a real challenge here for you? Ah, okay. This is interesting. So it's making sure the other stuff doesn't suffer. Uh-huh. So, you know, the podcast, I want to make sure I, or, or I don't drop any spinning plates there. And I, I, I don't let the writing become a block for the podcast mm. progress. Nice. So it's like to find your focus, but not to let everything else wither in the garden. Right, right, right. All right. So that's the set. That's so we've had, th- we've had three questions now. What's on your mind? So what's the real challenge here for you and what else? So here's the next question. And what else, what else is a real challenge in all of this for you? 
is really balancing two sides of me. Because, you know, obviously when I'm in medieval poetry mode, that's slightly different to when I'm in podcasting mode or preparing for podcasting. And sure. it's, not, you know, it's not even just wearing a hat. It's, it's just like, it's, it's like I'm calling up a different part of myself to do it. And I've got to make sure that, I've, that they don't get in each other's way. That was the word that came out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. And for the folks listening in, what's interesting is as we go deeper into this, and I'm just asking the same questions, what's happening is the spotlight's moving more away from the poem and more towards how Mark is dealing with the poem. So it's becoming a little more personal and more self-aware around that. So the, the final question to ask in this pattern, and you know, this is the challenge for people to walk through these, these five questions, is to ask again, okay, so with all of this insight brewing, what's the real challenge here for you? To do justice to the poet and manage around that for the time being, because it won't take long to, to really get it to the point that I want to get it to. Yeah. And then I can really push off into podcast land and uh, have fun with that. So, Mark, thank you for, for role modeling that so beautifully. And what I hope people saw or heard is where we started, which was to find focus, changed into do true justice for the poem. And it's quite a different place. I mean, it's related, but it's different. And what's great about kind of Mark landing on that is my guess is he actually already knows what needs to be done to do justice to the poem. I mean, let me check in with you, Mark. Does that feel fair? Yeah, it, and it will be a feeling. I'll be able to look at it and think, yeah, okay, you're you're good to nice. go. And yeah. can can I just share a little, Michael? Because I think yeah. it's it, the experience I had there was it was in microcosm what you've been talking about. Because when you mentioned that, I went in. You said, "Well, what's front of mind?" And it was it was the stress of having to do this and having to do that. So it was kind of the busy productivity mm -hmm. stress that we're all familiar with. But what you did, the questions, it really just took me down into myself and it became much more, it just allowed me to slow down right? and me to get some clarity. And you were right. It, it was much more of a, a felt response at the end. You know, what, when you asked for what was front of mind, it was, it was kind of, you know, frontal lobes. Yeah. But actually by the end, you got me to a place that I was much uh, surer of my footing going forward. Yeah, and, and for me, a couple of things. One is it felt a, a reconnection to great work, which is doing justice yes. to the poem, yeah. rather than good work, which is getting everything done. Yeah. Um, and secondly, I just want to point out that it took us three minutes to have that conversation. So for those going, I don't have time for this stuff, yeah. part of the discipline is find some questions, ask them once, shut up and listen. <laughs> yeah. and, and having – it's a very simple structure – What's on your mind? Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? Okay, and what else? Okay, and what else? Okay, so what's the real challenge here for you? And that's the creative challenge I want to put out to people. Walk through that process and see what shows up. Great. And uh, Michael, thank you. That is such a great thing to put out there. I would really invite you all to go away and play with this and report back to us. Like I say, I'll just immediately after the interview, I'll give you the instructions on how the challenge works. Uh, and Michael's been kind enough to give us three copies of the coaching habit so what we'll do is we'll pick three commenters at random this isn't a comp you know we're not going to be judging the competition we'll just people who take part everyone's got an equal chance to win a copy of the coaching habit by michael which i have to say is i read it in a morning and then i went back and reread it the next morning and it's one oh. that i've dipped into and dipped into and i send it to clients and they go oh at last i get this stuff it's it's nice and clear so 
So, Michael, where can people go to find the book and also to find you and Box of Crayons on the web? Sure. Thanks for asking. So um, you've, you've heard where you can find stuff about the book, um, thecoachinghabit.com. That, that opens up a, a ton of resources for you to grab if you want and also links to Amazon and all that other good stuff. So thecoachinghabit.com. Uh, if you want information about our organization and the programs we run, we run them not really for individuals, but organizations buy our programs and we come in and deliver them for those orgs. Um, boxofcrayons.biz, B-I-Z or B-I-Z if you happen to be in the U.S. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Box of Crayons and LinkedIn. Um, I'm the only Michael Bungay Stanya there. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Who'd have thought? <laughs> okay, brilliant. And I'll make sure all of those links are in the show notes as well. So, Michael, thank you so much. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, lucky me, I had some coaching into the bargain as well. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Mark. In just one moment, I'll tell you how you can take part in this week's creative challenge. But before that, I'd like to ask you to do one small thing that will make a really big difference to the show. And that's to pop along to iTunes and press the little purple subscribe button. And if you're really feeling full of enthusiasm for the 21st century creative, maybe you could leave a brief review explaining why you like the show. The reason for this is that it wakes up the little gremlins inside the iTunes store. Because there's so many shows, the gremlins can't be expected to figure out which ones are good and which ones will appeal to this person or that person. Plus, they're gremlins. They don't have your good taste and discernment. So they're relying on you to press the subscribe button, to leave a review or a rating, because that lets them know that this kind of show is the kind of show that appeals to this kind of person. In other words, other people of creativity, good taste and discernment. And the Gremlins will put the show in front of them and more people will discover it, they will benefit and critically, the Gremlins can knock off work early. So please, consider the Gremlins. Press the magic subscribe button. Leave them a review. So Michael's given you a great creative challenge for improving your communication and influencing skills. If you want to take part this week, here's how the challenge works. Now, Michael's given you two versions of the challenge, an easy one and a hard one. It's entirely up to you which you pick. The easy challenge is to ask the deceptively simple question, and what else? Twice before Friday. It's deceptively simple because it's three small words, it doesn't look much, but according to Michael, this is the most powerful coaching question in the world. It has the power to slow you and the other person down and to open up new possibilities in a conversation when perhaps you're both eager to move too quickly to a conclusion. The hard version of the challenge is to coach somebody, a team member, a colleague, a partner, or someone else you're working with this week, 
using these four questions Michael gave you. So it doesn't need to be a big, long coaching session, just a short conversation structured using these four questions. Question number one, what's on your mind? This opens up the conversation, helping the other person identify the issue that they'd like some help with. Question number two, what's the real challenge here for you? This one helps them focus on the real issue, which may well be something different to their answer to question one. Question number three, and what else? This little question keeps opening up the conversation, prompting the other person to dig a little deeper or widen their perspective. You can keep asking this question a few times to see if it opens up more awareness or insights around the situation. Fourth and final question. Okay, with all of this insight, what's the real challenge here for you? So you're repeating this question with slight different phrasing, and this one leads the other person into making a decision and a commitment to move forward, hopefully in a more focused and purposeful way. As Michael says, when you're asking these questions, make sure you resist the temptation to jump in with advice or instructions, and that you give the other person time to respond fully. And the best way to do this is to become really curious about what they're going to come up with and how they might surprise you and themselves. If you're new to this and you feel a bit awkward asking these kind of questions, then say to the other person up front, would you like to try an experiment? Tell them about the four questions you got from Michael and ask if they would like to play with them and see what comes out of the experiment. Okay, once you've completed the challenge, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash 6. As always, when you leave your comment, please don't share confidential or sensitive information, either about you or somebody else. You have until midnight, United States Pacific Time, this Friday, 7th July 2017, to complete the challenge and leave your comment at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash 6. Obviously, if you're listening after that date, the challenge is now closed, but of course, you're always welcome to play with the questions, and you can still take part in future creative challenges. Once the challenge is finished, I will pick three winners at random from the comments, who will receive the prize Michael has kindly donated of his book, The Coaching Habit. As usual, I'm picking the winners at random. I am not judging the comments in any way. Over the weekend, I will send a bonus recording with my feedback on your comments and what we can all learn from the challenge. I'll also be sharing reflections and advice from my own experience as a coach. This part is important. The feedback recording will not be released on iTunes or anywhere else the podcast is syndicated. It will only be available via the 21st Century Creative email list. So to join the list, go to 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash bonus and enter your email address in the box. Not only will you get the feedback recordings for every creative challenge, you'll also get the 21st Century Creative Foundation course, a free, in-depth course to help you succeed as a creative professional. Okay, that's it for this week's challenge. You'll also find these instructions at 21stCenturyCreative.fm slash six. Thank you.